Good morning, guys. Um, we're going to start off by praying this morning. Uh, it's always a good idea. So, Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for being with us. We thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for your willingness to teach us more about you. And we thank you that this morning, that's exactly what's going to happen. And so we pray that as we look at this scripture, you will reveal to our hearts and minds what you would have us learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get started, I wanted to also remind us to be praying for our new church location. We would love to have our own building to call home for Antioch, Chicago, and we do, as a a leadership team, we feel that God is calling us to that. Uh, We also feel that God wants us to look inwardly for change this year, as well as outside to our surroundings. And as Andy said last week, God is concerned more with who we are than where we are. And there is a greater importance of knowing and following God over merely just experiencing him. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more later today. But in the Bible, we're not often instructed to chase like spine-tingling, chill-inducing moments in worship services. And I realize that might sound kind of shocking coming from the worship pastor, but, but it's true. Yet over and over and over and over and over again, we are encouraged to study God's word, to renew our minds through meditating on God's word, pray to him and have regular conversations with God, and then be obedient to the work that he's calling us to do, be obedient to the changes that he's asking us to make, and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world. So encountering God is awesome. It's really good, and we want to, and we will continue pursuing that. But this year, we are also really focusing on discipleship, becoming more and more like Christ in our everyday lives. Now, We are currently in a series on 1 John, which 1 John is how most of us Americans say it. Uh, Pastor Andy likes to call it 1 John. I think it's really cool. I think it's really awesome how he'll he'll say, oh, please turn in 2 Corinthians. And um, that's not quite what he sounds like. But but I think it's really cool. It's a cool designation. So I think I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to start referring to it as 1 John instead of 1 John. Uh, I don't think I'm going to pick up all of Andy's pronunciations like Deuteronomy. Um because that's Deuteronomy, um, but, uh, but one John I think I'm going to pick up. Uh, slightly related, there was one time I was in a church service back in Tulsa, and a guy literally preached for an hour out of the book of Malachi. So if, if you're new to the Christian faith, it's actually the book of Malachi. So it was very humorous for us. Sounded like, you know, the Italian prophet, Malachi. Can't help of like thinking of him as like this Italian prophet who's writing scripture like this guy from the early 1900s who's dreaming of going to America. You know, it's like, one of these days I'm going to write a book of Malachi. It's going to be in the Bible. It's going to be a, a so nice. So anyway, a <laughs> little, little humor to start the day off. All right, so this book of the Bible, uh, 1 John, is written by the Apostle John. It's a letter that he wrote that focuses on what it means to be a Christian and how we can know that we are saved. So John keeps it really simple, and he's calling the readers back to three pillars of the Christian life. Number one, correct doctrine. That means having a correct set of beliefs about Christianity, about the Bible, about Jesus. Number two, obedient living, being willing to do what God calls us to do. And number three, passionate devotion to God, making him the priority in our lives. Now, the first week in the series, we saw John sort of jumping around a lot in the beginning of this book. That part of the book might seem a little confusing at first, but it makes sense because he's taking on some really big issues that require speaking to both sides of the argument. 
he's really keeping the scale even when he's doing that. He's saying, don't sin. You guys need to stop sinning. Make sure you're not sinning. But hey, if you do sin, it's cool because Jesus is covering us and he's like our advocate with the Father and you, know, you don't need to worry about it. You're going to sin. But hey, make sure that you don't sin and don't be doing that and don't take this as an excuse to go out and sin. But hey, if you do, it's okay because Jesus has got you covered. So he's kind of going back and forth, evening that, that scale out. That's an important thing because it's a big issue because we serve a big God who's complex and it's not always just a quick, brief, simple answer on things. Last week... Pastor Andy covered 1 John 2:18 through chapter 3 verse 10 which primarily warned us against false teachers which are also called antichrists. Now there are people in the world who are openly hostile to Christianity and the things that our faith stands for. And then there are people who claim to be fellow followers of Christ. They claim to be Christians, yet they actually lead people astray from the truth of the gospel. Now, whether it's somebody who is preaching harmful doctrine or it's one of those nut jobs who actually claims to be Jesus themselves, if they lead people away from the truth of the gospel, that person is referred to in this book as an antichrist. Now, Andy showed how John encourages encourages us to stay close to God and remember the original foundations and teachings of Christ so that we can avoid being misled by false teachers. He also showed us in chapter 3 that our true identity is that we are God's children, and we are to live from that understanding of how God sees us. And you can listen to his messages on both of those previous weeks at our website, which is AntiochChicago.com. So feel free to check that out if you missed those, those weeks. Also, much of John's letter here has been in response to Gnosticism. Andy spoke about that a little bit last week. Gnosticism, if you're not familiar, was a heretical, mystical, some, might, some people might say demonically inspired false view of Christianity. It cropped up a little bit after Christianity originally started taking the world by storm. And you might have heard the term Gnostic Gospels, like if you read the book Da Vinci Code or saw the movie. Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Judas even. These were false Gospels. They were writings about Jesus, and they're not in the Bible for really good reasons. <laughs> the Gospels that we find in the Bible, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those were written at the absolute most a few decades after the events that they speak about. The Gnostic Gospels were almost all written way later, like hundreds of years after the Synoptic Gospels in the Bible. So why did this happen? Why did these people start writing these extra Gospels and try and start this Gnostic faith that was different? Well, a basic explanation is that the Gnostic Gospels were adding to the story. The Gnostic faith was like adding to Christianity. They thought that the Gospel of Jesus Christ was a story that they could play with, just like other cultures did with gods in their day. So it's not really unusual. It wasn't like they were new at this. Uh, the Romans actually did that with Greek mythology. When they were taking over Greece, they were thinking like, hey, you know, their, their gods are pretty cool. These are some pretty cool stories. But instead of calling that guy this, let's change his name. And instead of him fighting that guy to get his powers, let's change it so that he actually fought that lady. And then they had a kid and then his kid, you know. So they just kind of rewrote it as they went. It was like this game of yes and, which is like what improv players do, where, you know, they keep the improv thing going because they don't stop and say, no, 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 instead of that, let's do this instead. They just keep adding to the story and making it grow until it gets ridiculous. <laughs> so anyway, that's what was going on here. And it really didn't work because they didn't have prophecies or even a lot of history that turned out to be true. 
in these Gnostic books. And we know the Bible, the really real Bible, was not just an ongoing game of yes and because the prophecies about Jesus that it has, they were made by multiple authors over hundreds and hundreds of years, and those prophecies did actually come true. The historical claims that it made are being verified all the time. The Bible is reliable. The Gnostic Gospels are, using technical theologian terminology, mamby-pamby hogwash written by a bunch of wackadoodles. (laughs) So if you wouldn't believe an Abraham Lincoln quote from 1997, you probably shouldn't believe a gospel written over 100 years after the person who supposedly wrote it died. The gospels in the Bible are accurate and reliable. The Gnostic gospels are cuckoo bananas. So that'll tweet. That's your tweetable phrase of the day. Gospels in the Bible, accurate and reliable. Gnostic Gospels are cuckoo bananas. So today, we are looking at, in the really real Bible, 1 John 3, 11 through 24, which emphasizes the importance of walking in love and how we can identify if we have the love of God within us. It's 1 John 3, 11 through 24. I'm going to read through that passage right now. So starting in verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, And love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So he starts off saying, This is the message you have heard from the beginning. The instruction, the rules of the game, this was the very beginning of that. Here's how to be a Christian. It's Christianity 101. From the beginning, this is a principal part of the faith loving God and obeying God and loving one another. Christ told us that we would be scorned and hated by the world, and John's kind of reminding us of that here. Don't be surprised that people hate you. Jesus said, people will not like you because you follow me. But he also said, people will know that you're my followers because of how you love each other. A mark of God's children is that we love the brethren. We love each other. In the ancient world, this was obvious because people would say, like, Christians, those freaks? When they come over to to have dinner at my house, they refuse to bow to our idols. They refuse to bless our home in the name of our pagan god. 
which could turn out really bad for us. They refuse to acknowledge that the emperor is a god, and we all get punished for it. Those guys are always causing trouble. I hate those guys. If you love them, you must be one of them. Nowadays, it's Christians, those freaks. They're hateful, bigoted, intolerant people who don't believe in evolution. They want to destroy science and take away a woman's right to choose. I hate those guys. And if you love them, you must be one of them. Forget love them. If you don't hate them, you're probably one of them. (laughs) But love seems to be the central passage, seems to be central to this passage in Scripture. Because God is love. It's no surprise. And love is something that we all desire. We all agree that we need more of it. Even if you were single this past Valentine's Day, you might have not liked the holiday, but you like love. You might hate the PDA and the annoying pet names and maybe the way your roommate talks in baby talk to their significant other, but we love love. And when we read Bible verses about love, even saints and sinners alike will agree and say, yeah, I love love. We want more love. And as we've talked about a lot of times before, love actually started with God. We did not invent love. God is love. He is love. Love began with the Trinity, like Father, God, God the Son, which is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. We're always together in this loving relationship of three. And it's out of the overflow of their love that everything in existence was created. It was here before you and I were ever born. Love will exist long before you and I pass away. Our culture, though, is always trying to redefine it and trying to express it differently from how God proclaims it to be. But love is constant, and it's eternal, and it's unmoved by our interpretations of it. And if we're going to have an accurate view of what love is, if we're going to know the right way to love the brethren like we're called to in this passage, we have to look at what God says about it. So John says loving others is an absolute must. This is the beginning step of Christianity. But it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to know how to do it well. And we need to know what love is by God's definition so that we can know how to love by God's definition. Does that make sense? We need to know what love is by God's definition so that we can know how to love by God's definition when we're called to by the Bible. And so we're going to focus, that, focus on that this morning, uh, and we're going to draw that out from this chapter. So, again, we all have a need for love. It's not just that we like it, and it's not just that it's desirable, it's that we absolutely need it. We were created by God, hardwired by our creator to need love. If you take a human baby and you put them in a room all by themselves and you give them everything else that they could possibly need, so food, shelter, clothing, everything, education, but you withhold love from that child, if that child lived past childhood, you would not have a healthy, fully functional adult on your hands. They'd be pretty messed up. Why? Because we need love. And yes, unfortunately, some crazy people have actually tried that experiment in the past. And sadly, most of the subjects of those experiments did not survive past childhood. If you go back to Genesis, you see that God created the first human beings out of dust. Adam was made out of dust. I think that's really important because we're made out of something simple and finite and limited, and yet he placed this eternal spirit inside each of us. 
And that's important to grasp because we're in this temporal, limited, earthly frame with a divinely created, eternal spirit in us that is designed to be connected to the all-powerful, all-loving, eternal creator God. And so from the time we're born, we're actually not connected to him. So we feel this overwhelming sense of being incomplete, this massive emptiness that we just cannot fill. And we are not whole without his love. No matter what we attain in life, no matter what we do, that void is there. No matter how successful you get, no matter how much money you make, no matter how beautiful you are or how beautiful your spouse is, no matter how nice your house and car are, no matter how smart and cute your kids are, no matter how famous you get so that everybody will remember you for the rest of time, it doesn't matter. That void in you is still there and it still craves meaning and purpose and love and you're stuck with it. The problem is, most of humankind is trying to fill that infinite void with a limited earthly supply. That's the problem. Humankind is trying to fill this infinite void, this infinite need, with a limited earthly supply. We are constantly reaching and trying to get more love. We're clawing at it, but it's never enough. We have this insatiable hunger for more, 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 more all the time, and it causes us to behave pretty badly most of the time. People bounce from relationship to relationship all the time, bounce from job to job, passion to passion, just trying to find the thing that's going to fill this hole. And it doesn't work out too well when we have this huge need for this thing, but our ideas of what that thing is are shaped and reshaped all the time by our culture. So movies, music, media, in the culture that we live in, they are constantly changing how people pursue this thing that we need. Anybody in here ever been to a fun house, like at the carnival? Like where you go through and they've got the, the tunnel that's spinning and all that stuff. And then there's always the little hall of fun house mirrors, right? So you've seen a fun house mirror. It's like a mirror, but it's all screwed up. It's like our culture is viewing love through one of those fun house mirrors. And when you look through one of those, the reflection is still your reflection. It's still you but it's all out of whack, and it's distorted to the point that you can barely recognize yourself. Some parts are way bigger than they should be. Some parts are way smaller than they should be. Sometimes that's desirable. <sighs> Sometimes it's not. It is your reflection, but it's wrong. And that's what our culture does to love. It's kind of like the real thing, but it's warped and it's distorted. It's not that we have absolutely no idea about what love really is. It's not like we have no concept how to love other people. It's just warped. Trying to love people without God's view of love actually leads us away from Christ. If somebody took a picture of your funhouse mirror reflection, right, and then they get a complete stranger, they say, here, take this picture, now go out onto this crowded street and find that person. What are the odds that they'd actually find you? Not really good, right? You're like, okay, I've somebody maybe with blonde hair, I think that's a dude. Uh, they're not going to have a really good chance. That's what's happening with our culture. We have, we've all seen these people who are searching for love with our culture's warped view of it, and it's no wonder that they're not finding him. Him, capital H, him. We keep believing this lie that this next thing will be it when we finally, whatever, right? When I finally graduate, then this will go away. 
It's that, it's that drive to graduate. That's what's driving me to, to feel this way. When I finally get that job, when I get that promotion, when he finally proposes, when we finally are able to have kids, if I were as successful as that person, when my family finally recognizes and values me, if my dad would just say he's proud of me, when people finally acknowledge all of my hard work, then I will finally be able to fill this emptiness. But we see celebrities and sports stars and politicians who seem to have everything together. They've got all the money. They've got the hottest spouses. They've got immense success. People are going to know them forever. They've got the admiration of millions, and they blow it all, all the time, because they still can't figure this out. They get that thing they're pursuing, and then they go, this wasn't it. I'm still empty. We look to other people and other circumstances to fill us up, and they fall short. And we fall short for them, too. It's like putting two vacuums together. We're trying to suck the same thing out of each other. It's not going to work. So to bring this back to the verse that we're looking at this morning, we can all nod our heads yes and say, yeah, when John tells us to love one another. We're like, yes, that's good. Let's love one another. But do we really know what that looks like? We as humanity and even as Christianity have fooled ourselves a lot, thinking that we're going to know and experience love by any means other than getting closer to God by knowing him and obeying him. That is the only way we can get connected to the infinite source that will fulfill that infinite void in us. Truly, having a chill-inducing time in worship just isn't enough. And, I mean, this morning was that. It was great. It was awesome. I love that. I'm glad that we're a church that can have that kind of experience. And hats off to the worship team for just entering into God's presence and bringing us with you. That was great. Those moments are wonderful. They are good. It's good to want more of them. And we are not going to stop pursuing them here at our church. We are going to continue pressing into that. But that isn't experiencing the fullness of God's love or walking fully in relationship with him to the degree that it restores us for more than maybe a few moments. This kind of thing that John's talking about has to be a way of life, walking in love. Walking in love has to be a way of life for us. As we've said before, we don't get to choose what love is. We don't get to decide that. If love is real, we can't just say, I get to decide what love means for me and how I want to show love. No, it's like gravity. It just is. We can't define our own interpretation of what gravity is. It will result in us going splat at some point or another. We can't decide how it works. It just is what it is. Our opinions of it or new definitions of it don't change how it works. When things are real, they're that way before we get here. They're that way after we're gone, regardless of what we say about them. We can take our warped, warped version of it and say, this is what I think love is. This is what love means to me. This is how I show love. I think that thing that God calls sin is actually love. But if it's not in line with God's definition of love, the correct response from God is, you're wrong. That's not love. The way we have to approach real things is not by saying, this is what my version looks like. The way we approach real things is by saying, okay, what is that? <laughs> what is love? How do I do it well? What is Christianity? How do I truly follow Christ? 
and not just be like the Gnostics and come up with my own version. That's what John is talking to us about in this letter from the Bible. Now, probably not the type of thing that a lot of churches are talking about this Sunday morning, but there's a, a, a Netflix documentary on Ted Bundy that's out right now. It's pretty popular. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ted Bundy was a serial killer uh, who was active in the late 1970s in America. He did a lot of really horrific things. He killed dozens of young girls. And the documentary series has a reporter who's talking to Ted and asking him questions. And Ted doesn't want to confess that he actually did these crimes. Um, but the reporter wants to get the story out of him. So he eventually gets him to start talking about himself in the third person of what would it have been like if somebody did this? What would they have been thinking about? What would have motivated them? Here's a quote from Ted Bundy. Perhaps this person hoped that through violence, through this seriously violent series of acts, if with every murder, leaving a person of this type still hungry, unfulfilled, it would also leave him with the obviously irrational belief, that is, the next time he did it, he would be fulfilled. And the next time he did it, he would be fulfilled. Or maybe the next time he did it, he would finally be fulfilled. What's the difference between Ted Bundy and us? Some people are really willing to go a long way to achieve their goals or to fulfill themselves, to meet their needs. And some people are willing to do truly unspeakable things to obtain their goals and to meet their needs. And I think that's where this motivation comes from, and I think it connects very well to the reference to Cain in this Bible verse. That's the emptiness that Cain had. It's mentioned in this passage of Scripture, his desire to fill his emptiness apart from God. Cain was trying to fill that same void, but he was trying to do it apart from being connected to God. As we mentioned, when we love, try to love, and we don't have God's definition of love, it leads us away from him. The story of Cain, if you're not familiar with it, is in Genesis chapter 4. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you can check that out. It's a, usually a pretty well-known story. But Cain was not truly loving God, and he was not truly loving his brother. But he was trying to fill that void inside himself on his own terms. He was saying, God, yes, I will love you, and I will worship you. But I'll show you love how I want to. I will worship you with what I'm willing to give in a way that's comfortable for me. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone to worship you. That seems awkward. That seems weird. That seems like you're asking a little bit much. That's just not how I'm wired. This is what serving God looks like to me. And then when that didn't really fit with loving God and serving God on God's terms, he did unspeakable things to try and still fill that void. Loving God and loving people are connected. We see that time and time again in Scripture. 1 John 3, or 1 John 3, is saying, if you say you love God, but you don't help people who are in need, or you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you have no love in you. Cain had no love for God or Abel, regardless of what he thought. Again, trying to love without God's view of love actually leads us away from Christ, away from God. When we love people who have more than us, when we love people who are more successful than us, then we actually admire them and we seek to imitate the greatness that we see in them. We applaud them and then we pursue that level of greatness. 
When we don't love them, our sin leads us to hate them, resent them, and then seek revenge for their crime of being superior to us. In music circles, um, I'm a musician and uh, grew up really admiring a lot of guitar virtuosos. Sometimes these guys are called guitar gods. They are players who are just levels and levels and levels above what any mere mortal will probably ever attain as far as being a guitar player. And you've probably heard many of the names of these pioneers of guitar playing, like Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan or Eric Clapton or Eddie Van Halen. Since most music nowadays is actually just a bunch of punk DJs with clever masks pressing play on their laptop thumb drive, you probably have not heard of the modern virtuosos who are still amazing guitar players like Eric Johnson or Tommy Emmanuel or Monty Montgomery, but they're incredible. The point I'm getting around to is there's a phrase that a lot of musicians will use when they go and see some of these guys. Like if you ask a friend, like, oh, hey, you went and saw Tommy Emmanuel. How was it? This phrase that gets said a lot is like, man, he makes you either just want to go home, lock yourself in your room and practice, or go burn your axe. Axe is guitarist vernacular for guitar. Why? Because it sounds kind of cool. All of us guitars are actually, guitarists are, 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 we're nerds, we're nerds. So (laughs) we we try and make it sound cooler than it really is. But anyway, you want to go home and you want to practice like forever and never come out of your room? Or you want to just give up, right? It's like we're inspired to do one of these two things. Seeing greatness in others should inspire us to move towards greatness ourselves. And sometimes it does that. It inspires us to get better, to level up. But sometimes seeing greatness inspires us to give up. That's the wrong way to go. And then sometimes it inspires some nut job to go and shoot John Lennon or Dimebag Daryl or Selena or Christina Grimmie or another couple dozen of musicians who were killed by their fans or their admirers, or other people who wanted that kind of success, just like Cain. And we might be thinking, well, that's not me. (laughs) I would never shoot a pop star. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. But let's not let ourselves off the hook too soon. Because when it says here in this passage, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is talking about living in a continual state of spite towards somebody living with intentional unforgiveness. That is like committing murder in our hearts. That is completely unacceptable behavior for a Christ follower. Water's wet, the sky is blue. You cannot intentionally live with unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody and be a Christian. Now, there's a scale that we can be on as Christ followers. Starts over here, goes over here. Over here is, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the Son of God, I believe he is who he said he was, but man, I am struggling. I have so many doubts. I have so many questions about the faith. I don't know that I can do this, all right? There's down here. Over here, there's like, I am so sold out on fire for God. I'm going to go to India and save the whole continent tomorrow. God is good, right? So there's a scale. (laughs) Most of us are somewhere in between. (laughs) You can be over here, and it's okay, as long as you're willing to take the next step and move forward. God's not asking us to, like, step up and take over an entire continent tomorrow. He's asking us to just take the next step he's putting in front of us. No matter where we are on that scale, we have to be willing and prepared to take the next step forward that God is calling us to. 
And maybe that step for somebody in here today is forgiving somebody. Maybe that step is letting go of that resentment and unforgiveness that we're holding on to. If you are stuck all the way down here, again, it's okay. But if you've been stuck there for a little while, it's time to move. Yes, God accepts us exactly as we are. He accepts you exactly as you are. But he loves you far too much to leave you that way. Here's a little tip. The thing that we are usually being asked to grow in is going to be showing love towards others. Sometimes it's changing our view of how we see Father God. Sometimes we're asking to change how much time we spend with him. But most often, it's actually the hard work of growing in the way we see other people so we can love our neighbor the way God asks us to. God is perfect. Loving him is as easy as we are ever going to get it. Loving people, especially if they've hurt us, if they've embarrassed us, if they've misrepresented us, if they've victimized us, they've gone out of their way to jab at us, they've abandoned us, and let's just be honest, they annoy us, that can be difficult. And this love that John is talking about in the Bible is not just being kind it's not just saying nice things. It's not just love-bombing people to make them feel better about themselves as they wither spiritually. This is not the cultural funhouse mirror version of love where we just say nice things and then pick our way to love people. He says this. He says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what John says laying down our lives. If we have something they truly need, we need to be willing to give it. If it takes our time, so be it. If it takes hard work, so be it. We ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. And this is not just a message for other people. Like, yeah, they should. They should totally lay down their lives for me. They should meet my needs. They should give me this. I need this taken care of. No, it's us out. Every last one of us. It's going out because we get God's love from him to us. We take that love, we give it to other people, they give it to other people, it goes back to God. It's this huge circular thing. We can't be something that just sucks that all in and then we just damn it up and then it no, never goes anywhere after that. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Compliments and flattery and kind words, love bombs will only go so far, and they don't communicate the love of God. Actions do. Actions of affection, acts of service, making sacrifices of our time and our resources, that shows love. But how often do we do that? How often do we take time to really sacrifice what we want for others? Some of us do really well at that. Some of us can take a step moving forward in that. And when we give our time in service to God, we are laying down our life for the body of Christ. And we want to be a church that does that. That's why we're doing Feed My Starving, Feed My Starving Children in the coming weeks. Uh, make sure you check out more about that. If you have questions about it, you can ask Pastor Andy. You can ask us. You can go on the website at AntiochChicago.com. I'm sure we have something on there. This maybe we'll be talking about it more here too. So, but, um, but please make sure that you check that out. It's an awesome time. We've done it a couple of times before. You really get to see the impact of blessing other people. The love of God motivates loving God's people. 
And we, when we are loving others as ourselves, we're actually asking, what is the absolute best thing for them? That's what we really want, right? We want what's going to be the absolute best for us. And it's important that we are praying and seeking God for that answer. And we're not just making a judgment call on our own. They actually might need just a love bomb. They might, <laughs> they might really need some reassuring words. They might need some comforting uh, words to, to help them through a, a difficult time. They might need that love bomb. They also might need a truth bomb. <laughs> but they definitely need the love of God, and they need the truth of Jesus, and we need to be asking God how to do that well. We need to be seeking him out through the scripture to find out how to do that well. And I want to say, beware of critics who scoff at the notion that the best thing that you could do for somebody is to give them Jesus. Beware of people who criticize others for sharing the gospel as being something that is less loving than something else. Beware of critics, some of who are in the church, who point to our culture's warped funhouse mirror version of love and say preaching the gospel doesn't measure up to that. I am truly shocked at how when sometimes there are Christian men and women who have preached the gospel to sometimes millions of people on this earth, they receive some notoriety or they pass away, and then people take to social media, including a lot of Christians who criticize those ministers for not doing more for social justice causes. They should have done more to help the poor. They should have spoken out more about racial injustice. They should have been more accepting of the LGBT community. Reality check, though. Social justice is important, but it's not anywhere near as important as salvation. Not even close. If we could cure malaria, cancer, and HIV, and then let's say we eradicate global starvation, we get everybody on the planet clean drinking water, we switch the world to clean energy, no more fossil fuels, we somehow make reparations for racial injustices and give everybody their own Netflix account so I can stop mooching off my brothers, it still doesn't change the eternal destination of anybody. Most of the people you've met in your lifetime will still die and spend eternity apart from God. Forever. But it was nice that we made their life a little cushy for a few years, right? That was worth it. No. We should fight for justice. We should fight for equality. We should fight for the dignity of everybody on this planet. We should care for all people. Absolutely. We should, as the church, we should be the best at that. But let's not lose sight of the eternal weight of the mission that Jesus Christ himself put us on. It was immensely troubling to me when I recently saw a Barna report, a Barna study, showing that although... 97% of millennial Christians believe that coming to faith in Jesus would be the absolute best thing for anybody. Over 47% of millennial Christians said they believe it is wrong to share your faith with somebody who doesn't believe like you do. Almost half. <laughs> yeah. So 47% of millennial Christians would say it's the best thing that somebody could come to faith in Jesus. Jesus was completely wrong about that whole Great Commission thing. They say that's judgmental, that's unkind, that's not loving. 
trying to love apart from God's view of love leads us away from Christ, and it leads other people away from him too. Jesus told us, love God, love people, share the gospel. The true story of the ultimate love that God had for us so that people can be saved across the entire world, no matter what they look like, no matter what they act like, no matter if they're rich or poor or young or old, no matter what culture they come from or what their definition of love is, because they need the love of God. And even after we know him, we still need to have that love. We still need to share that love because we don't just need love. We need perfect love. And because our need for it never stops, we don't just need a dose of perfect love. We need infinite, unending, perfect love. And that's Jesus. This world needs Jesus. Everybody you know needs Jesus. We all need Jesus. The band can go ahead and come on back up. Apologize for going a little bit late today. Jesus is always available. He is always caring. He is always going to do what will be absolutely best for you. What would it be like if you had that kind of a relationship? Just imagine that. It's like the song was saying today. You see me, you know me, and you love me through it all. What would it be like if you had somebody who really knew you completely, knew every single thing that you ever did or thought about, everything that you were ever proud of, everything you ever regretted, knew you inside and out, and yet they still loved you like this anyway? What would that feel like? might not even seem possible, but it is. That is Jesus. We are all created to need that kind of love, and there is nobody and nothing on this planet that will ever satisfy that except Jesus. And we can only love others the way the Bible here in John is asking us to. When we are first loved by him, we experience that love, and then we give that love, his love, out to the other people in our midst. This love started with God. It was originally given back to God, within the Trinity, before creation. Then it was given to us. And now the love we have is given back to God by us. And then it's given out to the others that he loves. And it's given back to him again. It's this huge circular thing. And when we love other people, we are loving God and Christ. Whether directly, because they're a believer and they have the Spirit of God within them, or indirectly, because all people have immeasurable value because they bear his image. It's a relationship that is bigger than us. It's infinite, and it can fill that black hole within us. And if you don't yet know what that love is like, or if you're feeling like you've gotten distracted by the other things in life, or you've been trying to find a love that fits our modern society's funhouse mirror version of it, and you've been coming up short, we're going to take some time to pray this morning about that. And we're also going to have a time of prayer where you can come forward and get prayed over by... uh, one of our prayer team members. If you bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you that you are love and that your overwhelming desire is to share that love with us, to completely fulfill us, to completely make us feel known and loved and desired by you. And that it is out of that overflow of your love that you want us to love each other to fill each other's needs, to reach out and lift each other up when we're feeling low. 
I pray that you would inspire all of us what the next step is that you're asking us to take, whether that's in our faith, whether that's in how we reach out to others, whether that's how we express our love, whether that's how we accept the love that you have for us. That you would show us what that next step is to take this morning as we are focusing on you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness. Purify our hearts this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen.